would invite you to have your Bibles open to John chapter 2, and that portion of scripture we read just a few moments ago, John 2, 1, 2, 11. <coughs> Let's begin this morning by just noting that what we have in front of us this morning is a very, very significant portion of Scripture. It's an important passage of the Bible because this, an account of the first miracle, is an account of the first sign that Jesus performs among us. And as well as that, This is an account of the beginning, the start, the commencement of Jesus' public ministry. The start of Jesus' public ministry. So, as he starts out and he begins, what is his initial message? What is it that this sign is pointing to? Well, that's what we'll consider for a time this morning. And we're going to consider this miracle uh, under a few headings. So let's not beat around the bush. Let's just jump in. Let's begin our study. And let's consider our first heading. And that is the setting of the sign. Okay, the setting of the sign. Now, uh, weddings. Weddings are going to be a hot topic in the life of our uh, congregation over the next few months, are they not? Firstly, Maria and Andrew are going to be tying the knot sometime in May, and then God willing, uh, sometime after that, I think in August, uh, Gavin and Phoebe will also be tying the knot. So I would begin by uh, just warning single people. That wedding fever has broken out at London City Presbyterian Church. Be on your guards. But what can we learn? What can we take from the fact that Jesus chooses a wedding? He chooses a, a, a wedding as the setting for his first miracle. Now, He's the son of God, right? He is God. He could have chosen anywhere for this setting, but he doesn't. He chooses a wedding. Why? Well, hold on, hold your breath and hold on to your pew because this leads us into highly controversial Territory. It does. Because we see that in choosing a wedding as the setting for his first miracle, Jesus is endorsing. He is stamping his seal of approval on the divinely ordained institution of marriage. Jesus is endorsing Marriage. So why is that important for us to note this morning? Well, come on. Surely that is obvious for us all, isn't it? Because marriage 
is something in the UK, in the Western world, is something that is up there for debate, isn't it? We only have to think that uh, two days ago, uh, our government, the government in the UK, has uh, published its equal marriage bill. So our government has put forward legislation that seeks to alter or turn on its head the biblical definition of marriage. And folks, whether we like it or not, we have to engage with this. You know, our church, our congregation, and ourselves as Christians, we have to engage with this topic and we have to be entirely clear on what we think about it. So let me ask you, what do you think? Do you think that Bible-believing Christians should oppose a redefinition of marriage? And if so, why? I'll say that again. Should Bible-believing Christians oppose a redefinition of marriage? And if so, why? Well, simply put, folks, yes, we should oppose a redefinition of marriage. And the reason that we should do that is because of what marriage points to. Now, God didn't just create a union of a man and a woman to provide companionship, compatible companionship. He did that, and that is part of marriage, but there is more to it than that. And God didn't just provide this union or create this union of a man and a woman because it provided a, an ideal environment to raise a family. That's part of marriage, but it's not. Oh, there's more to it. There's another reason why marriage is between a man and a woman. Another reason. What is it? Well, just think about when it was that God created marriage. When did God create marriage? Well, it was in Eden, wasn't it? It was in the Garden of Eden. It was prior to the fall. But God knew what was going to happen next, didn't he? He knew that Adam and Eve were going to fall. He knew that sin was going to enter the world. So what does he do? How does he act? Well, God provides for us this living illustration. He creates marriage. He provides this living analogy of how a covenant, how a relationship with God can exist again through Jesus Christ. He provides marriage. So folks, we have to see that a biblically understood marriage, it points to the relationship with God that we can have through Jesus Christ. But hang on. That only works if marriage is between a man and a woman. It only works if marriage is between a man and a woman. You see, 
a wife in a biblical marriage, in a God-honoring marriage, a wife is to be a living illustration of the submission, submission that humanity must have before God. Does that sound controversial? Ephesians 5.22 Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Okay, what about the guys? What about the husbands? Well, the husband, he is to be a living illustration of the sacrificial love that Christ demonstrated on the cross. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So folks, are you following on this? Are you with me here? Do you see it? Christians, we don't oppose a redefinition of marriage because of some crazy fear of homosexuals. You know, we don't oppose a redefinition of marriage because we are bigoted or because we are somehow just intolerant people. We oppose, or we should oppose, a redefinition of marriage because a lifelong union of a man and a woman, it points to our Savior. It points to Jesus Christ. It points to the love that he has. And a marriage, it points to the love that Christ tells the world. So this first sign is set at a wedding. But we're not quite finished with the setting of the sign just yet. Because when we were reading through it this morning, did you notice that, what will we call it, a rather strange conversation that takes place in the passage just before the miracle? Do you see the rather strange conversation that takes place between Mary And Jesus, what's happening there? Well, um, I don't know what Maria has planned for her wedding. And I don't have any idea what Phoebe's got planned for her wedding. But I'm pretty sure that it uh, won't in any way correspond to their first century Palestinian equivalent. Because weddings in Palestine, they were very different to what we know today. They were quite a a, a serious affair. They were a community event. So if you got married in the first century here, this was going to be a a huge community event. Your whole village, your whole town would be invited to it. And it lasted an awful lot longer than a wedding today. Uh, Weddings here would usually last up to about seven seven days. But importantly, especially for us to consider just now, hospitality at weddings in the first century 
was an incredibly serious thing. See, if you were hosting a wedding, you had to ensure that your guests were lavish, lavishly uh, prepared for. And if not, there were, believe it or not, legal repercussions. You know, can you imagine come August that we're not satisfied with a wedding meal and we take Gavin to court and sue him because of it? Well, that's the sort of thing we're talking about here. And that focus on hospitality, it means that when this wine runs out in this passage of scripture, it's not inconsequential. It's a serious, serious thing. You see, the wine runs out and that means that disgrace and dishonor would fall upon this couple and fall upon the wider family. So what happens? Well, Mary, she panics and she, she, she comes to Jesus and she tells him about this potentially serious, critical situation. Now, if your Bibles are open, can you see how Jesus responds to his mother? Do you see it? It's the beginning of verse 4. Mary comes to him and Jesus replies to her. NIV has it as dear woman. Now that's not what, that's not what Jesus says. The original just has Jesus' response. Mary comes to him, panicking. And Jesus looks at her, simply says, Woman. Woman. And that's it. Now that's a kind of unusual way to speak to your mother, isn't it? If I spoke to my mother like that, I would almost definitely get a scalp or a clip round the ear because it's, it sounds like there is an element here, a hint of rebuke. It's abrupt, isn't it? And that's kind of just added to by what Jesus says next because the original has, Mary comes to him and Jesus says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Woman, what has this got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And friends, if we are going to understand this miracle properly, then we've got to get our heads around why it is that Jesus speaks like that. Why does he speak so abruptly? And really, there's two things going on here. Okay, two reasons why Jesus speaks to Mary like this. One, Jesus is reminding his mother that she doesn't set the agenda. He's reminding Mary that ultimately his allegiance is not to his earthly mother. His allegiance is to his heavenly father. And then secondly, and it is so vital that we see this. Jesus' words, these abrupt sounding words to his mother, they betray his thoughts. They betray his thoughts. Because what does he say? He says, my time, my hour 
has not yet come. And every single time in John's Gospel that Jesus speaks of that hour, every time, he is thinking about one event. He is referring to his death on a cross. And so even he, you know, even a wedding, even when everyone else is around him rejoicing and dancing and celebrating, even at the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus' thoughts, they are entirely on the cross. He's thinking about the end. He is thinking about his death. And if we're going to understand this sign, we have to see that the cross is central to it. And let me ask you this. When is the only other occasion in John's Gospel where Jesus looks at his mother and says, Woman, you know, don't you? It's as he hangs and he dies on the cross. The cross is central here. Now let me test your memory, okay? Last week, Steve Mills preached, didn't he? And then two weeks ago, can you remember where we were? <clears throat> In a morning service, we looked together at, at an overview uh, of the signs. We took uh, as our text John chapter 20, verse 31. And we noted together the overall meaning of the signs. That if you take all these seven signs in John and you look at them together, then we see that this is Jesus revealing himself. He's revealing his glory, the glory of the Father. So let's move on and let's consider what we learn about Jesus' glory from this particular miracle. Let's consider, secondly, the purpose of this sign. The purpose of this sign. And the first thing that we need to consider here is that here in this miracle, Jesus reveals his identity. We all got that? Jesus, in this miracle, revealing water into wine, he reveals his identity. Now, how does he do that? Well, here we've got to look at the actual miracle itself. Okay? Let's consider the details of what happens. How does this miracle actually take place? What does Jesus do? He speaks to the servants, doesn't he? And he asks them to fill up some jars with water. And then the next step, he tells the servants to take some of the liquid to the master of the banquet. Now, friends, I grant you that this is subtle. It is very, very subtle. But we have to see that by Jesus performing this miracle, 
in this way, he is revealing himself to be God. By performing the water into wine in the way he does, he is revealing himself to be divine. He is revealing himself to be the glory of his Father. How is that? How? We see in the Old Testament, God worked through men, didn't he? God worked through prophets. And nearly always when God did that, he did so in the most incredibly dramatic and amazing ways. Just think about, for example, Moses in uh, Exodus chapter 17. It's incredibly dramatic. He he strikes the rock and the water bursts out. Or what about uh, Joshua? That's dramatic, isn't it? The trumpets and the walls of Jericho crumbling down. What about Elijah at Mount Carmel? He builds a digs a trench, he builds an altar, he cries out to his God to send fire. It's all spectacular stuff. But you see, not here, not in this water into wine. There isn't any grand theater here. You see, it's different. Jesus doesn't shout. Jesus doesn't wave his hands. He simply tells his servants to deliver the wine. Why is that? Well, it's because Jesus isn't just a powerful prophet. Jesus isn't just a divinely inspired leader. No. Jesus Christ is God. And that means that he can simply will this water into wine. The sign shows Jesus to be God. It reveals him as the glory of his Father. Now, a couple of years ago, I was uh, driving on holiday, driving through France with my family. And uh, I was in the driver's seat, I was doing the driving, and we get to a roundabout, (coughs) and there's a monument on the roundabout, and we go round the monument and carry on, but intrigue gets the better off me, and much to my wife's annoyance, I turn the car around and I go back to see what the monument was and what it was all about, and uh, as we looked at it, we find out that the monument was erected uh, to mark the the precise, the exact midpoint, the geographical midpoint of the country of France. And this next aspect of the miracle, this next thing that we're going to consider just now, this is going to be the centre point, or is the centre point, the heart of the whole miracle. And I highlight that so that we don't miss it. Please, folks, listen to this. Because it is so important. This sign, it doesn't just reveal who Jesus is. 
This sign reveals a new spiritual age. This sign reveals a new spiritual age. So let's think about these jars for a moment, okay? These six stone jars that carried water. Why? Why does Jesus choose the jars? You know, we've seen earlier on, he's the son of God. He is all powerful. He can perform this miracle in any way he chooses, but he doesn't. He picks the jars. Why? Well, these weren't just any old vessels. These jars were used for Jewish purification. And we're told that even in the miracle here. It says that the jars are used for ceremonial washing. Do you get it? The jars are used to symbolically cleanse the people before God. And so really what's happening here can be summed up by one verse. And we looked at that verse three weeks ago in our evening service. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Anyone remember it? The old has gone and the new has come. The old has gone and the new has come. And that is exactly what is happening here, folks. Because this running out of wine at the wedding, it is symbolic of the end of the old covenant. The running out of wine is the end of the age of the law. It is the end of the Jewish purification system. And now, now things change. Here we have the new age. Here we have the wine of the new covenant. Here we have the age of grace. Friends, what we've got here is the dawning of a new spiritual era in Jesus Christ. And we learn a a few things about that here. Because look at it. This wine, this new wine... It is of superior quality, isn't it? It's better than what has come before. And this new relationship that we can have with Jesus Christ, it is better. It is superior to the relationship that could exist in the law. Just look at the master of the banquet. Look what he says. He says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine. But you... You have saved the best till now. So it's better quality, but it's also in great abundance too, isn't it? Because Jesus instructs these servants. He tells them to fill the jars to the brim, right to the brim. And these jars were massive. They carried between 500 and 750 litres of liquid when put together. The new wine of the covenant, it is overflowing. It is extravagant. So I ask you, when you consider your life, when you think about it, 
Are there things there that you think are just so wicked and just so evil and terrible that God could never, ever forgive you for that? Well, that is not the case. There is enough wine to go around. Grace is lavishly poured out for the people of God. So there's quality here, superior quality. There, there is quantity, but there is also permanence. There's permanence. Because friends, think about it. Think about these poor people. They had to keep going back to the jars. The Jews had to keep going back. They had to go back and cleanse themselves time after time after time. But not now. Now there is new wine. Now things have changed. Because blood has been spilt on the ground at Calvary. Now, there is a once and for all and a permanent solution to sin. Okay, I spoke to Gavin um, ten, days or, 10 days ago, I think, and we were talking about how he proposed to Phoebe. And I won't embarrass you, Calvin. But it did remind me of how I proposed to my wife. There was a beach and down on one knee, oh shebang. But I remember uh, before I did that, I was petrified. I was shaking. I remember driving there. And I was just so scared about the response that I was going to get. You know, was she going to just smile at me? Um, was she going to say yes or... Was she just going to turn on her heels and run in the opposite direction down the beach? Well, friends, we can talk about this miracle all day long. We can talk about what it reveals and what it points to. But guess what? What is most important is you. What is most important is how you respond to this miracle. And that's our third point. And we just close in a couple of words with this. The response to the sign. The response to the sign. I'm just going to say two very quick things. Just a couple of words. First thing, just look if your Bibles are open at verse 11. Look at verse 11. It is amazing. Look at the response of the disciples. What does it say? says, this, the first of these miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana. He thus revealed his glory and the disciples, they put their faith in him. They saw the sign and they put their faith in him. And we need to see, you need to see, that this is a miracle about transformation this is a miracle about change so if you want change in your life real change in your life then do not hesitate for a second this morning 
follow the lead of the disciples and trust in Jesus. Put your faith in him. Because you might be searching after change. But everything else, it might provide you with change for a moment. It might provide you with temporary happiness. But this wine, the wine of the new covenant, it can change you. It can make you entirely new. And then we end, folks. Last thing. The last point this morning. We conclude really talking about what we started the sermon with. Because let me ask you again, why is this current debate on marriage important? Why is it crucial? Well, it is not just because biblical marriage points to Christ. It is because marriage points to A coming wedding day. It comes, it points to a future wedding day. Because throughout the New Testament, Jesus is described time and time again as a bridegroom. And his church is described as the bride. And friends, if you are a Christian this morning... As you gather here, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then rejoice, because guess what? You're going to a wedding. Rejoice, because you are going to the greatest and the longest and the best celebration that there has ever been. You see, Christ turned water into wine. And through him, a new dawn, a new spiritual age is here. So believers rejoice. And rejoice because of what we learn. And we end with this. Revelation 19.9. What does it tell us? It says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Praise God for that. Praise God that He turned water into wine. Let's pray.